Hi, I'm Adrian Mabin, and this is the podcast I'm Also, where I talk to people with multiple careers, pursuits, and interests. My guest for this episode is Q Bidwa. Q was born and raised in Tauranga Moana. His list of skills and pursuits includes artist, educator, hunter and gatherer, and I'm going to throw in Warriors League follower, but not necessarily Warriors League supporter. Kia ora Q. Oh, kia ora, kia ora. Maybe we'll start in the art, in the art world. Mm. How, how would you describe yourself? Um, artist is pretty general. Yes, yeah, I'm definitely an artist. I'm a, I like, I like to call myself a full-time artist, but I'm a full-time um, educator as well. So in regards to that, I, um, I teach art on the Bachelor of Creative Industries and on Level 4 Art. At Toyo Humai. Yep. And on um, the other, other side, I, um, I am a um, full-time uh, moko artist. Mm, so tattooing within Māori, Māori designs. And you've been doing that for 20-odd years, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm, 20 years, uh, taking me around the world. Yep. Yeah, so... Where have you been? Oh, where, where haven't I been is the question. I'm quite lucky I've been all through Europe. Yep. In regards to uh, London, Italy. Went to um, Scotland, didn't you? Yeah, Scotland, Aberdeen. Spent, spent a, a bit of time there. Amsterdam. Uh, oh, she's been like, yeah, everywhere really, all through Europe. And when you're traveling over there, what's what's your main goal for travel? Oh, I don't do I don't do as much traveling as I used to when I was younger. But um, over there it was just strictly to make money, make money, bring it back back home, chase the euro, chase chase the pound. And it was really good back in in the earlier days. Yeah, but not so strong at the moment. So I don't sort of chase that that want and need anymore. Although I get invited all to all these countries all the time, I find it hard to sort of go back there. I'd rather stay here. And um, go for a fish or a dive. Yeah. Is there many other people doing what you do? Oh, I've met, met so many, so yeah. many people that are, that are doing what I. But they're younger. Yeah. You know, they're younger and they're um, pursuing that sort of, you know, market. I've got kids now, so for me, it's about staying at home with my kids and doing the things I love to do at home. Yeah. Because you recently had all the people from overseas, including the Taiwan people. That was. Yeah, yeah, that was amazing. So we, um, for the second year running, we've had an indigenous conference here that invite some um, indigenous people from around the world to Tauranga and we've run it out of Whareiro Marae which is a week-long uh, convention or t- sort of wānanga where we all talk about you know where we sit in regards to the indigenous world within the practice of, of tattooing and the indigenous practice of tattooing and we share our um, our cultural values we share our our thoughts uh, we eat together sleep together it's a real real special time in regards to you know building um, those relationships with other indigenous cultures around the world that are that are practicing moko or tattoo. You've got different styles. Oh, the styles is, the styles are totally different, but the art form it's um quite crazy to seeing the um the similarities in regards to what we do. Yeah. The way even some of the ways that we talk or the ways that we tattoo or the um the origins of the tattoo. Um, like we've had people from Greenland, Alaska, a little island in Alaska. Taiwan and making those connections are really important because we're at a part, uh, we're at a, at a place at the moment where we we really um, we've revived that part of our culture. Yeah, where a lot of indigenous people are still starting to revive it. So we help out where we can in regards to their next steps to reviving their um their art form for their indigenous cultures. And what's the future of the? What oh, the, the the future's looking great. 
for some reason tattoo has blown up in the um in the mainstream sort of sector and it's one of those careers now you can mm. have a career in it and a lot of people like i find as a as a um, lecturer within bcl bachelor of creative industries there's a lot of students coming in to learn about art so they can be tattooist and you know 10 years ago that was unheard of mm-hmm. tattoos the tattooing scene was a scene for um you know rebellious people who sort of didn't conform to society and didn't like mainstream work so they re- would rebel and become tattooists but now it's multi-million dollar industry mm. you know with a lot of money to be made in regards to that line of work mm. mm. how, do, how do you discuss what someone wants and what's the process oh that's that? that's huge it's taking me um years and years of experience to break down um the origins of where a lot of the semiotics or a lot of the designs turn up oh, and what they represent it's taken um yeah years and years of research but not research that you can find with an institution it's a research that you have to go out and actually find out for yourself by going to um, places like marae talking to uh kuya komatsu yeah it's definitely been a lengthy a lengthy journey but it still hasn't finished in regards to you know i'm always learning in regards to learning something new every day about the art form and yeah. the passion that i love to do you also do I mean, other things as well, like the, um, the walker at, that was at the village recently, you designed that? Yeah, yeah. So um, I've been lucky enough that I've done a lot of work on walker in regards to a lot of sailing with Teodere with um, along the lines with um, Jack Thatch in them. I spent about three years doing a navigational course alongside Jack. So walker's always always a passion of mine in regards to sailing, paddling, wakama, as well as, you know, being for me, it's just about being out on the ocean and being um, an ocean-dwelling person. And any excuse to get out on the water, I'll be there. So in regards to the design that um, was done at the Historic Village, the original concept for that design was actually to um, be for a Christmas parade for the Tauranga City mm. Council. On the day of the Christmas parade, it started pouring down, so they had to cancel it. And mm. then um, the, Lions, the Lions Club come along and said, oh, we've got a bit of money here. We, we're looking at doing something new. So they looked at a, a kaupapa, which was a hewaka eke noa, which was about bringing uh, multicultural people together and paddling one canoe together in order to move forward. A lot of the artwork was done by a lady named uh, Michelle Estelle. She's a lovely, lovely artist, and she did a really, really good job on, on the walker too. In regards to some of the design work on there, it was really yeah. good. She did a lovely job. So um, I'm obviously doing a lot of, sort of hist- based on history. Who are you, who's been some of your mentors or people sort of you'd go oh, to for? Where do I start? Maybe just a few. Mentors. One of the biggest sort of, in my later life, uh, mentors probably be a, a guy, Stu McDonald, um, we went to school together. He's, he's a cousin. He's from Mount Matapi, but he's um, probably the reason why I'm um, tattooing in, in the art industry at the moment. I've always had this thing for art, always been one of those people who's um, been sort of gifted and able to draw and able to have the ability to create, think creatively. So um, he's definitely one. Um, another guy is, man, there's so many. Sort of some of the big names are like Cliff Whiting, Pucky Harrison, probably Peter Boyd, who was my old art teacher at um, St. Stephen's Boarding School. He's still around today, and he was Pucky Harrison's right-hand man. He's probably definitely a huge influence in regards to what I do now. What's St. Stephen's like? St. Stephen's? <laughs> I went, uh, I'm from South Auckland. So okay, yeah, yeah. How much time have you got? I know. I just, uh, <laughs> no, actually, St. Stephen's was um, probably some of the best times of my life as a young kid. So I was sort of, I grew up in a, a quite a, not a very nice environment where there was drugs, alcohol and abuse around. So I was lucky enough to be sent away to boarding school. 
and I was I actually absolutely thrived. You know, some people are built for boarding school, yeah, and some people ain't. And I absolutely loved the five mm. years that I spent within um, St. Stephen's. Always mm. good at sports. Yeah, so yeah, I yeah. At school, you go whatever the sport was. You know, at St. Stephen's, like oh, well, yeah, that's, that's a loss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know, we were quite lucky that we had uh, you know two hundred boys you know in the school, and any chance to play a sport or to get out of out of um, school. We would jump on it. So, you know, sports was definitely a huge, it taught us a lot, teaches you a lot, being into sports. And so sports for us was um, probably, I'd like to say, probably came before education sometimes. Mm. <laughs> They're pretty sports-focused. <laughs> yeah. Eh? yeah, we were sports-focused, definitely. Yeah, sometimes I think, uh, oh, especially if you're in the first 15, you know, oh, rugby, rugby especially, was more of a focus in the old books. Yeah. But in saying that, we still we still dove into the books. We... um pretty sturdy um regime in regards to what we had to do homework every night go work every day in regards to that we were still educated well too yeah. i'm i'm uh you know i'm a prodigy of that uh a success yeah, yeah i suppose <laughs> <laughs> we'll call it success yeah yeah success yeah definitely Oh, and you, you were telling me about one of your travel stories in, where was it, Tahiti? Was it? Oh, the yeah, water, yeah, yeah. The, the raining? Yeah, yeah. 2020? Oh, no, I was, in, I was in China 2020. Oh, 2019. No, no, I was in China 2019, 2018. Yeah, I was over in Tahiti. So I got um, I got invited over to an indigenous conference over there, tattooing, tattooing one for all indigenous people, obviously. And um, while I was over there, this old queer come over um, while I was sitting in this whale. It's what they call the, one of their houses. We were in the Aotearoa house. And this um, queer named Rereo come over and she said, hey, you fellas come over, have breakfast with, with us on Sunday. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And there was a few of us who got invited. And we were all keen. We went over on Sunday and we were thinking, oh, man, we're going to be going, going to church. And she returned up to her house and she goes, okay, uh, we have breakfast. You know, Tahitians, eh? the, the um, English isn't that great. And uh, she goes, okay, we have breakfast. So we had this beautiful meal. She lives on this lagoon. Beautiful, beautiful place with about five separate houses where you can sort of stay closer to the beach or closer to the road. Just little houses. Anyway, she goes, um, okay, we go to the church after after breakfast. And I was sort of, I'm not much of a religious person myself. And she was going, okay, we'll go to the church, which is just down the road. And we're going, oh, yeah, okay then. So we jumped on the back of her truck and she drove us just down the road a bit and we pulled up to this church. It's uh, actually an a octagon, the church, eight sides. And we were rocking up and I was oh, okay, we're going to have church with the Tahitian people. And then uh, everyone was going inside and we walked around the back. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, we must be going through the back door of the church. And then she goes, no. And she, she took us to the spring. So there was a spring there and we seen this beautiful spring. And she said, this is uh, one of the most sacred places in, in on the island, on the island of Moria. But it was dry. It was a well. It was really hot there. I was red like a crayfish. Had no shirt on. Had the bot out. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, um, there was a bit of a moment there. We were holding hands and the Tahitians started singing a song. And they were singing a song and then um, we got to our, our part. And then um, one of the bros did a karakia. I think I did a karakia and then um, one of the girls that was with us, um, Anikaro, she started crying. She felt a bit emotional at the time. You know, it was a very, very lovely thing. And we were about to leave and then a bit of water started coming into the into the spring. So it was like a, a well, but a little sort of um, shallow well made out of rocks. 
and you could tell it was a real sacred place. So anyway, that happened, and then after that, we jumped back in the truck, and we drove up to the mountains. Drove up to the mountains, we got out, and she goes, oh, you follow me, and we started hiking through this bush. Hiking through this bush, and we're going far out, we're pretty high up, you know, you could sort of see the clouds. And we come into this little clearing, and within this clearing, you could see 360 degrees of the island. And she goes, oh, and we said, oh, radio, what's this place? And she goes, oh, this is Te Upo o Te Whee. So um, that's in Tahitian. So when you turn a transfer Te Upo o Te Whee into Māori, it becomes Te Upoko o Te Whee, which is the head of the octopus. And anyway, we were, oh, man, that's a cool name. She goes, yes, this is the head of the octopus. So we were standing there. And she was pointing out all the different mountains that surrounded us on the island. She goes, this mountain is Rootu. And then, oh, choice. And she went around, named all the mountains, and she got to the one just behind us on the left, and she called it, this is Pahu. And we went, oh, cool. And she goes, Māori, <laughs> referring to us. Māori, this is your mountain, Pahu. And we were going, oh, she goes, that is the beating heart of the Pacific. And we were going, ah, choice. <laughs> you know, Māori's got the own mountain here. <laughs> it's the beating heart of the Pacific. And she carried on, and there's these eight um, mountains. And then she goes, this is the heart of the Pacific. And we were going, ah, oh, choice. And then she um, put her hand in her bag, and she pulled out the sheet and flung it out. And there was a picture of an octopus on there. And then she pointed to the head of the octopus, and she goes, we are standing here. And then she pointed to the first tentacle, I went along the tentacle, and she goes, this is Rōtū. She pointed to the mountain, and then from the mountain, she goes, from Tūpō Te Whee, Rōtū, Hawaii. And we sort of sat there, and we went, oh, far up. And then she went to the next tentacle. I was almost going to say testicle. (laughs) (laughs) Went to the next tentacle, and um, she went from the mountain, the second mountain, and then she went to another place in the Pacific. Then she went to the next tentacle, same thing, from the mountain, to Rapa Nui. Then she went to the next one from the mountain to Samoa. The next one from the mountain to all these, all she pretty much named most of the islands in the Pacific. And then she went from um, the mountain, Pahu, the Māori one. She goes, she goes, Upo o te whee, Pahu, Pahu, Raratonga, Raratonga, Chathams, Chathams, Aotearoa. And straight away we were like, oh man, that's the path that, uh, you know, our ancestors took in order to get to, um, to Aotearoa, to New Zealand. And I was, after she had explained all this, I was standing there and, and we were sort of, we did the same thing, we held hands, we did the Tahitian song, and then we were standing there and our mate was crying her eyes out. <laughs> then we started getting into some karakia and then I was standing there and I was looking out towards the sea and I, I realised it was a really hot day at, at that stage. I realised that there was no line between the sky and the sea. It was just one blue, uh-huh. one, and so it made me think of the octopus that um, they talk about in the story of Kupe, and the name of that octopus is called Muturangi, or the name of the pet of the octopus is um, Muturangi, and when you look at that word Muturangi, it means te mutunga o te rangi, or there's no end to the sky, where does the sky end? So I looked out, and then I thought to Kupe, I've thought about Kupe. And Kupe, what they say, how he found Aotearoa was he was chasing Mutsurangi's octopus. So he was chasing it. But when I thought about it, he was actually wasn't chasing an octopus. He was actually going down the tentacle of the octopus to find Rarotonga. So he, he followed Pahu, the mountain, went from Pahu to Rarotonga. 
uh, went from Rarotonga to the Chathams, and then from the Chathams to Aotearoa. So I went, oh man, I was sort of that was a brain explosion for me. Had I just found how we, um, you know, discovered Aotearoa from Tahiti, but then when I sort of thought some more about the story, now when we were walking up to the hill, there was a white flower there, and I said to Edeo the queer, I said, Edeo, what's this flower? And she goes, oh, that's a tear, T-E-A. And she, I said, oh, what does that mean? She goes, oh, that means white in Tahitian. And I went, cool. And then anyway, going back to when we were on top of the mountain, it made me reflect on when Kupe actually discovered Aotearoa. When Kupe discovered Aotearoa was his wife. His wife said, he ao, he ao, he ao te aroa. So when you break down the name of Aotearoa, we've got ao, which can mean a light. And then you've got roa, which means long. So we know that Aotearoa means land of the long white cloud because that's what they've seen. They've seen the Southern Alps. It looked like a long white cloud because of the, um, the snow on the mountains. So we had the word ao, which is in the Māori dictionary. We had the word roa, which is in the Māori dictionary. But then you had the word tia in the middle, T-E-A. The word tear is actually a Tahitian word for white. So that states that Kupe and his wife were actually Tahitian. And from Tahiti, because there's no other island that uses the word tear as white. For Māori, for Māori, it's actually ma. Like marama or the moon, the whiteness of the moon. Or um, ma can be used as a source of light as well. But um, for me, it, it sort of connected the dots in regards to the migration of Māori from Tahiti, and was Kupe and his wife actually leaving Tahiti to find these um, new these new lands? So it was a real mind blowing experience going to Tahiti because I I'd, I'd got there and when I turned up there it was just another tattoo convention. I'd been to hundreds of tattoo conventions around the world, and I was quite upset because I wanted to go there and find something that sort of linked us to Tahiti somehow, and I found it through um, Auntie Rereo or Nene Rereo in regards to the stories that she shared with us and our connection to that place, Moria, and how from that island it connects to Aotearoa, to Kupe, and how Kupe found the majestical land of the long white cloud. Wow. Mm. Great story. Not too many people will know that story. <laughs> but that's just my thoughts and what I found in connecting all the dots through the research and that that I found a lot of that research sort of come back through um, Cliff Whiting and spending time with Cliff and um, other people such as Cliff. But it was, yeah, mind-blowing when the connections all came together. Ooh, makes me shiver now. <laughs> Just on the back of the creative side, do you have a creative process? I do, I do. Uh, my creative process is um, stemmed from the way that um, my ancestors worked so in regards to my process I I have um, I start with karakia but even before karakia I make sure that I sit down and have a consultation with clients my consultations are not your um, your average normal consultations sometimes they can take up to an hour in regards to um, breaking down what the client wants and what the client needs that breakdown is not sort of your, your average questions too it's sort of like, okay, um, here's a question, for example, why do you want a moko? <laughs> and you know, some of the responses I get from that can can vary in regards to depending on where I am and who I'm doing. When I used to travel to Australia a lot, I used to travel over there about 
maybe four or five times a year, probably even more sometimes. And a lot of the response was, um, oh, I want a moko because I want people to understand that I'm not an islander and that I'm Māori. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when you look at the NRL these days, hey, yeah. you know, everyone's wearing, wearing their own designs so they can, um, so everyone can understand what ethnicity they yeah. are in regards to being confused, Māori being a Tongan or Samoan, which happens a lot over there. So it's an identity thing, eh? Yeah. Identity. And then what happens? You had your consultation? Yeah, after a consultation, then um, we will book in a date when I'm free, when the client's free. And then from there, we um, go through a process of, um, of karakia. Yeah. And after our karakia, the process then is about, then I'll hand the um, client a pool. Normally it's a concrete pool, so they... <laughs> but um, now nah, it's about um, the process. And then, yeah, it's right. we get right on. There's no... Everything's done by hand, so I'll draw on the design first with, with Sharpies doing about three layers. So I'll start off with a yellow pen, a red pen, and then come back with normally a dark blue. And then from there, it's straight on with the machine. So there's no um, there's no design work drawn up pre the actually application of the tattoo. It's all done on the spot because everyone's different, eh? The, the contours of the body work um, differently and everyone's shape sizes are differently. So you can't take a photo of an arm and draw a design and expect it to fit on there perfectly. So you've got to draw it on the pen. And another part of that is making sure that it's um, it's significant to the to the wearer, to the person um, who has the tattoo or the moko. So how long is that process usually... The drawing can, depending on like if I'm doing a, a forearm, for example, the drawing process can take up to an hour and a half. And then um, after the drawing process, a, f- a forearm can probably take maybe four to six hours, depending on um, the design. So it's a, it's a long process. It's a it's not easy work. Everyone out there thinks that tattooing is easy. It's, it's, um, once you do the work, it's, it's um, one of those, it's not a physical, it is a physical, um, it is hard physically. But the main strain on it is the um, the mental ability to be able to focus for so long yeah, on one specific sort of place. Go out of focus. No, nah, no, nah, you don't <laughs> want to be going out of focus. That's when you end up with um, yeah, you, those sort of those ones you don't like <laughs> in three years' time. Yeah. Mm. And then uh, and then what's after it's been done? Yep. And what do they have to do to? Yeah, after it's been done, we'll close up with karakia. Uh, once the karaka process is done, then I tell you how to look after it in regards to these. Putting on the tattoo is only a part of, or a, 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 the application of the moko or the tattoo is only a part of the um, of the journey itself. The way you look after after it in regards to the processes that that follow are really really important. Or else, if you don't look after it properly, it could scab up and not heal properly, and that's due to the um, person not looking after it and just keeping um, being hygienic with it really. Oh yeah. yeah. So what's the basic, basic? Um, normally, it's uh, you stay out of the sun for you know two weeks. Uh, stay out of the ocean. You apply um, bapentum, which is an antiseptic cream that you can pick up in Woolworths. Apply that um, just every time you have a shower, and try not to um, get anything sort of dirty on it because it's an open wound. Eh? It's an open yeah. wound, and you, anything that gets on it can be can cause bacteria to get into it, and then that wound will will get infected, and that's the last thing you want with your tattoo. Because once in, there's infection, then you're on the antibiotics. But that can happy, happen through a lot of ways. And majority of the time, it's um, what the person's doing after they've, they've finished the tattoo. So there's some tips there. It's good. Definitely some tips if you're going to get a tattoo or moko. 
It's good to know. Mm. You do use, do use a lot of technology in your designs, don't you? Like, if you get your iPad, for example. Yeah, so I've, yeah, I've just started, um, I've not started sort of the last couple of years using an iPad just to get a bit of a, so the client can feel at ease. So you take a photo of the area with the capabilities of the iPad. You can draw draw the tattoo on the various areas of the body. And then um, you can show the client just so they can go, oh, man, that's awesome design. But can we change this? And you have a breakdown of what it means. So it's given them a bit of peace of mind before they actually get under the machine, which has um, been huge with the um, the whole thing of iPads coming into play. Yeah. I thought I'd get you to do a little example for yeah, a little video. Yeah. Or some, some tattooists are actually going even further where they draw it on the iPad and then they gr- they're going straight to, to the um, stencil paper and pushing print from the iPad. Oh, really? And then the tattoo comes out and then they just put it straight on the skin. And then they're just going over the lines and coming back and shading whatever depending on the um, design of the tattoo. So that's taken it that step further in regards to, we could do it as moko artists, but I prefer not to. It um, sort of takes away that uh, whole... Is that cheating yeah. a little bit? Yeah, it is cheating. <laughs> hey, tattoos. <laughs> it is cheating, but uh, I don't know, when the technology's there, why wouldn't you use it? For me, I like the whole human element of having to move or get something designed by hand because that sort of shows your skill and your ability yeah, as mm. a person. And what software are you using for that, just for those? Uh, Procreate. Procreate. Procreate's number one. If you've got an iPad Pro, get Procreate Fano. It's about $16, but it is damn worth its weight in gold. Yeah. Definitely. It's ridiculously cheap for what you can do. Definitely cheap. And even if you're just a, like a person who likes to doodle or just to sketch, um, cartoonists like yourself, yeah. Procreate is um, definitely the bee's knees in today's um, design world i got to save it for the iPad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The old <laughs> iPad's not too cheap. Not eh? cheap. Even yeah, the pencil. Yeah. Wow, That's yeah. a fortune. Yep. Just for the pen itself, it's about, what, 250 300 yes. But it's definitely worth it. It's changed the game, eh? Mm. Changed the game. For tattoos, at least. Like, yeah. uh, majority of the tattoos are using the iPad Pros and printing it straight out. And they don't even have to touch the skin with a pen. Or don't have to touch a pen at all. They just go um, straight onto the skin from the iPad, which is crazy. These days, how fast it's moving in regards to technology and tattooing. So when you're out, when you're outside, mm. away from your iPad, mm. hunting. Yep. What's what's what are you? Uh, what are your outdoor pursuits? Uh, this this year's been a bit of a bit of a slow year for hunting in regards to hunting in the bush. I like to say I chase a lot of pigs, but nah, I um my yard's not big enough to keep dogs, pig dogs. So um, if anything, I'll probably just, I'll normally if I'm going to go out for a hunt. Pig hunting, it's normally with a few of the bros who have got dogs already. But um, I like to, I've got a good mate of mine. He's from Tomaranui, Kubris. He's an avid deer stalker. So for me, deer stalking is, is definitely my my game. You and the deer, and you're trying to, you're chasing these buggers through the thick of bush. And um, you don't know when they're going to pop up. You've got to be on, you know, wood send all the time. You know, there's nothing like being able to, to feed your community, your family, your friends with um, some nice uh, veni any back steaks so for me venison is, is uh, deer stalking is my um line of work when it comes to hunting but the only reason i hunt is to provide you look at meat these days in um all the, all the preservatives and the way that you know you see them injecting meat with all this stuff at least if you're hunting and shooting your own meat you know exactly where it's coming from and what's being put on your table and it's good quality meat good steaks good good stews and the main thing is you know where that meat is coming from. 
Mm. You know, you don't know what they're putting into some of these steaks these days in order to make it. In fact, not saying that it's bad here in New Zealand, but it's sort of going to hit that way. But that's the, that's the main reason why I hunt is definitely just to provide for my family. The and old, fishing. Oh, fishing. Um, yeah. Fishing is definitely, I, I like to say I love getting out there and sitting there for four hours and getting a couple of nibbles and that's it. No. no. <laughs> I'm strictly those guys that if I, I go out and I have to come home with something. So if the fishing's not on, I'll stop. I'll jump in my um, dive suit and I'll go out and I'll have a dive and get kinners, powers, scollies, pick up a couple of crays if I'm lucky. So even with the fishing, if the rods are not on, I'll shoot out and I'll drop a long line and I know I'll get a feed on the long line. So for me, it's not, once again, it's not about the um, the leisure side of it. Although it's really fun and I really, really enjoy it, it's about providing for my um, for my family and for my for my wider wider family and wider community, and that is the reason why I definitely do it. Like I said, although it's fun, it's even better when you know turning up to one of the uncle's houses or to um, one of the nanny's houses and you're bringing them a good feed of of kinners and you see that big smile on their face mm. because they can't gather it anymore. It's about looking after our old people. And about looking after the ones who can't do that type of thing anymore in regards to gathering food and gathering kai. Have you noticed any changes in stock levels since you were oh, young? Jeez, um, oh, jeez. I could tell you, I could tell you some stories, eh? Like um, even just with like I do a lot of diving within uh, in the in the entrance just between the mount and uh, Matakana. You can only dive on the on a slack, which gives you about forty minutes on in between tides. What we what I used to do is the just on the on the ledge, there's a ledge there that drops down to about 25 metres. And then what I used to do is I used to go down the chain of my boat, anchor up, go down the chain to about 25, and then I'd come back up the um, up the face of the channel. And it just used to be rocks. Oh, it's still rocks. But I would just zigzag up and work my way up, pick up craze and just kinners. But um, all those kinners have disappeared ever since the um, harbour's been dredged. I mean, because of the dredging of the harbour, the kinners have seemed to have not come back, which is sort of um, sad. There's a few odd crazy, but not as many as there used to be. <clears throat> so that's probably one of the worst um, affected places in regards to that, what, what happened with the dredging. But there's still um, kai on top. It's at about maybe six, seven metres, so you can still um, free dive it on a, on a low. That's <clears throat> what we used to do when we were younger, but we bottle dive now. It's just way faster and easier. But there's still a good feed in there, and um, but you've got to know what you're doing. You've got to be careful. Got to have your wits about you. Yeah, mm. I find it scary at the end. <coughs> yeah. The worst, the worst place that's probably been affected at the moment is probably the um the puppy bed in the middle of the harbour. Yeah. Paretaha, Paretaha used to be um I could say maybe five six years ago you could hit, hit go into the puppy bed and you'd put your hand straight in the sand and you'd come up with twenty odd your your hands would be full and they were all good edible puppy. But now we're going into the harbour, and because of that dredging, it's affected the sand, or it's affected something in regards to um, the beds are shifting, and you've got to really search hard for the for the right beds now, in, in order to get yourself a feed, they're still there, but not in the um not in the not in the volumes that um, used to be there five six years ago because of the dredging. Well, it's nothing else because nothing else has, has happened, except for the major dredging that's gone through the harbour. When was that done? Oh, geez, maybe. Four, four years ago? Yeah. Yeah, four years ago, and I think they're still doing it to this day. I still see boats in there still having a good dredge and going out and dropping it out in out in the front of the, the beach, the surf beach. 
But it's something I'm passionate about in the ocean. Mm. Definitely something I'm passionate about. Um, we have a saying in Tauranga Moana, um, Tauranga Moana, Tauranga Tangata, which is saying, you know, we're a part of, you know, the people of Tauranga are a part of the ocean. You know, which is, you know, why wouldn't you when you live in a beautiful oh, place yeah. like Tauranga? It's a unique spot, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Oh, we saw do the joke about going on holiday somewhere and then I go, why did I leave? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's all. That's exactly what I used to say when I was overseas. Yeah. You know, I'm in the middle of Amsterdam where everything's just brick, you know, concrete and there's no grass. And I'm like, damn, why am I here? You know, I'm in the middle of Aberdeen and I'm um, walking past the cemetery and everyone's having a picnic in there because it's the only place that's got grass. You know, when you start looking at those things and realize it makes you realize how great we have it here in Aotearoa, eh? how great. And we, um, a lot of people take that for granted, eh? Mm. Especially our kids, because they haven't, um, because they haven't gone out and seen what other how other people live, and it's not until they go abroad and then they realise and understand what we have here at home. Mm. COVID's been good for, for making people realise, I think, yeah. a bit more now. Yep, Realise what you got. Yep. And yep. oh, sorry. And, and we do, and we do it well, eh? You know, in regards yeah. to looking after what we have. Well, I'd like to think so. Anyway, we could do a better job, but. Comes up to them. It's up to the individual. Really. Yeah. Yep. We could do more. Yep, we could. I should be doing more. <laughs> I was gonna say, um, if someone wants to get into a career like yours, we'll just say creative. Yep, what are yep, what are some yep. key key skills? So you said you're a natural draw, natural you had uh, natural skills, was, or you developed? Oh yeah, I was definitely a tattoo eh, growing up. Yeah. Even through university, like I went through when I went through Waikato University, I'd be sitting up in the back of the lecture theatre drawing all through my lecture notes, pictures. But that's how I concentrate, and that's yeah. how I could take on what they were saying. Yeah, a lot of people do that, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think now he's not even listening. But <laughs> all, all my classmates used to look at my notes, and um, there's a few of my mates, they just go, oh, bro, can I have a look at your notes? And I'd like, yeah, 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 have a look. You know, because they probably missed class or something. And then they'll look at it, and they'll go, bro, where's your notes? I'll say, they're all there in picture form. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so for me, um, creativity has been... Um, one of those things that's carved my path for me, which um, which I've sort of pursued, and that's what a lot of people don't do. That they they got this create, they got this skill, and then they'll go and be an accountant or something. Yeah. you know. And then they regret it ten years yeah, later. Yeah, and then they go, then they turn to sixty, and they go, oh man, I'm going to go and study art. <laughs> you know, which Died is which is it. yeah, which is really sad, man. Chase the stuff that you're passionate about, eh? Yeah. You know, if there's anything that I could say, is definitely chase what you're passionate about. And try and get a job where you work within your passion. You know, I'm quite lucky that, you know, I work in a place of creativity where you get to be creative every day and talk about creativity and try and teach creativity. And um, it's something that's really, really important in this day and age. And the biggest thing today is creating creative people, you know, to getting finding people who um, think outside the box. You look at Google, all those big sort of corporations, they're looking for creative creative minds they're not looking for mathematicians <laughs> well just for the artificial intelligent one guys <laughs> yeah 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 right i'll move on to my plug a product section yep. this is where you promote something you can promote something you're uh of yourself or something else you someone else yep. or something else you want to promote an uh, event an event um oh this um this week um our students at toyo hormai have got the um well, what day is that though Oh, that's on Thursday. Thursday, 4 o'clock at M Block. Well, so I had this edited by then. We'll do two things to promote. Okay, then. 
that is our NDA show for our second year. So Thurs- Thursday. Yep. And then now another thing would probably have to be promote, promote. <laughs> you got a website? No, I don't. Oh. I don't. I, I thought I'd, I don't have to really work online because I have enough clientele through word of mouth. That's good. That is the best form of advertising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. So um, I don't want to have to pay for a website to be created when I'm, I've already got the work. Sometimes I have too much of it and it gets a bit much. Anything, be good to your mum. That's a good that, one. That's what I'll promote. Healthy food. Yeah, healthy eating. And the government needs to drop taxes on Artists. healthy on, on healthy food and put taxes on non-healthy food so we can live a bit longer. Mm, and what are you working on now? Um, on that. Yeah, at the moment, I'm working on uh, on my actual marae. I'm the chairman of my local marae, which is the Waikari marae, Ngāti Tapu and Matapii, Mount Maungunui. So we have a huge hall or what we call a farekai where everyone eats. And I've got a big, huge, I've got to pretty much fill the walls with the, turn it into a creative space in regards to it's going to reflect the stories of old, the stories of our people. As well as that, it's going to have um, our people's genealogy on there. So when the kids come through and they sort of hang out within the, the eating hall or the hall, they can see exactly where their, line, where their lineage is going right back to the arrival of Māori here in um, Aotearoa, or wow. specifically in Tauranga. So that's a job I'm working on at the moment and trying to get, um, oh, it's on its way, just getting through all the design work at the moment. And then our next um, stop is going through and starting to do the walls. So it's a huge job. It's a job I'm doing for love, <laughs> but it's costing me a lot. But might need know. a website. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm quite lucky enough that I can do that for the community, for our hapu and for our marae. Yeah, mm. that's probably a good spot to leave. Finish on that. Yep. Thank you, Q. No, thank you, and um, yeah, some um, great quarter. Thank you.